Today at Reader's Corner, John Perlin, author of A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees in the Fate of Civilization. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. Until the ascendancy of fossil fuels, wood has been the principal fuel and building material from the dawn of civilization. As John Perlin argues in his 1986 classic, A Forest Journey, wood's abundance or scarcity greatly shaped the culture, demographics, economy, internal and external politics, and technology of successive societies over the millennia. Considered a modern masterpiece, A Forest Journey was just released by the outdoor company Patagonia in hardcover earlier this year. The book's comprehensive coverage of the major role forests played in human life have gained it recognition as one of Harvard's 100 great books. John Perlin is an author, lecturer, and consultant who specializes in solar energy and forest preservation. His books include A Golden Thread and From Space to Earth, The Story of Solar Electricity. He's a visiting scholar in physics at UC Santa Barbara. John Perlin. Welcome to Reader's Corner. Thank you for having me. Well, John, let's start with uh, Patagonia. Uh, We're used to books that come out of these New York publishing companies, and here we have Patagonia stepping up and publishing, republishing your book. Um, That's pretty unusual, isn't it? Well, let me emphasize, it's not just a reissue. Uh, It's uh, an update uh, bringing the uh, latest in uh, forest science and also, it's an enlarged edition by 150 extra pages by uh, including uh, many other cultures that the other book did not include. And unlike the other book, or edition, you might say, uh, goes back um, 385 million years ago uh, with the discovery of the first true tree, uh, Archaeopteris. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good point you make because especially – uh, in the last few chapters, you really do bring readers up to date uh, on just what's been happening across the world uh, when it comes to forested acres. Uh, what have we lost in forested acres uh, since your 1989 version of this book and and where? We've lost about, I think it's about like oh, uh, 10% or more of uh, forests in the uh, world. And uh, one of uh, the reasons for like that stimulated me to keep on going was I actually did feed on the ground uh, where I would uh, say visit a rainforest in southern Mexico every two or three years and watch uh, it follow the same path as every other culture that I uh, discuss in the book. Mm -hmm. And so I like it was a way of telling me I had something uh, current, uh, so important to tell. Yeah. Now, now, ten percent does not sound to the average listener or reader a great deal, but I assume this has something to do with where that ten percent comes from. I mean, I, I again, I, I'm a layman on this subject, but the Amazon sure. comes to mind. Well, well, first of all, we shouldn't uh, focus on the Amazon. We should focus on America. Right now, the U.S. Forest Service is trying to, um, like, cut down um, multiple uh, groves of uh, old growth because it should really be the U.S. Forest Service should really be called the uh, 
uh, U.S. Uh, logging service. And <laughs> uh, we have in this country some of the greatest uh, banks of uh, carbon CO2 uh, in the world, and uh, they're cutting them uh, down ruthlessly here. And actually, uh, I think it's 150 environmental organizations have uh, protested to Biden saying that, well, you uh, really want to have a clean energy initiative. Well, let's start with the trees and let's stop cutting down the uh, big uh, you know, banks of uh, carbon dioxide, which is the old growth. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. I have nothing against uh, planting new trees, uh, but uh, every time I see a photo of an environmental group doing so, I look at the size of those trees and I wonder how could they ever compensate for the loss of, of what you call these these banks of, of trees, these carbon reservoirs. Uh, I can't imagine that they, they will make a difference for many, many, many years. Well, that, that's a good point because uh, one of the, I guess you would call it, uh, fantasies of uh, the logging industry is that new growth, youthful trees are taking in all the carbon, which is false. And it's actually the um, old growth that is the big uh, CO2, uh, you might say, uh, vacuum cleaner. Not only does it hold in more carbon dioxide, but because the canopy uh, grows and grows with the size of the tree, a old growth tree actually takes in and holds in much more CO2 uh, than, say, uh, new growth. Uh, the problem is we've anthropomorphized uh, the uh, tree, and um, we see a young tree as vigorous, and we see old growth as, you know, doddering and ready for the uh, rest home, or you might say the uh, logging truck. And I want to point out to our listeners that if you're looking at the book that Patagonia has published uh, by John Perlin, uh, you'll see a beautiful example uh, of one of the old trees, the big trees on the cover. Uh, that has to be one of the most beautifully displayed covers I've ever seen uh, on a book, uh, John. Again, oh, thank you. Again, uh, thanks to you and thanks to uh, Patagonia. Well, let's let's uh, delve into the, the the book and and the history of how this well, all happened. Well, well, if I may interrupt, sure. one thing I might say is do uh, judge my book by the cover. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, absolutely. Well, if you do that, you'll the people will be out buying it. And I also have to make the observation in reading your book that this is a book to savor. This is a book that you buy because for a long time you can use it as a reference book in addition to using it as a, a thriller, in a sense, a story of how this all happened. And while we're on the subject of how it all happened, uh, let's let's go back in time. Concern over the depletion of our forest goes back a long way. And um, I think it was you quoted Yuval Noah Harari, the acclaimed historian who said that the Stone Age should be called the Wood Age. You might want to share with our listeners just what that means. And then you can tell us about uh, Alexander von Humboldt in the 18th and 19th centuries and the, the role that he played over the concern of deforestation. Well, the reason why um, we should call the Stone Age the Wood Age is, first of all, humanity would have had to stay in Africa if they didn't have fire. 
and you don't have fire without wood. And so as uh, humanity uh, made its uh, trip from Africa, going one way to Asia and the other way to Europe, found uh, very cold climates. And the only way they could survive is uh, through having uh, fires. And also what's really interesting about fires is that it allowed us the conquest of night. And so we were not, oh, you might say, governed by, by the uh, time of uh, of day because we had fires. And also we have we had fire for light and we had fire for heat. And so the fire for heat allowed us to uh, meet as groups in the evening to talk. And uh, that's how like language developed to, to tell, you know, the stories. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, not only for fire, but also for material, because a stone tool is a very cumbersome object if uh, you don't have a wood handle. And um, wood handles on stone tools uh, revolutionized humanity's uh, capability of survival. So, uh, for example, we are just starting to discover uh, you know, wood objects, uh, that once were, they call them, um, hafting, which means attaching a stone tool to a wooden handle. And this created the greatest revolution possible, uh, in humanity. I mean, have you ever, I mean, I, I, I've experimented with this. I go fossil hunting sometimes and I take a stone and try to open another <laughs> stone, you know, with just the stone. Right. And then I uh, use uh, a uh, object with a handle, and I can tell you the difference. Yeah. You know, there was an 18th century explorer you, you cover in your book that declared the island of Madeira off Portugal to be where the New World began. Uh, you might want to explain what that means. I was particularly fascinated by what happened in Madeira as they decided that they would grow sugar cane, uh, which... Uh, eventually has an effect on the virgin forest? The word uh, Madeira in uh, Portuguese uh, means wood. And so it was named the island of wood is because so much deforestation had occurred up to the uh, 1400s in Europe uh, that they really didn't have in the uh, continental, uh, the southern area of Europe, enough uh, sizable wood to, you know, build ships uh, and to, uh, for example, um, heat in, industrially. Remember, and, that, and that's uh, one of the uh, points that uh, really uh, got me going on uh, the whole, uh, to write this book, was the discovery that that wood was the primary fuel and building material of every society uh, from the Stone Age until the... Um, adoption of uh, fossil fuels. But remember also that a good part of the world uh, still like uh, plays out uh, a forest journey. And also uh, here in the United States, we're playing out a forest journey all over the uh, continent. But to get back to Madeira, so they um, started traveling by a boat around Africa and the first thing they saw was this island that was just covered with trees. So they said, wow, this is the new world because the new world 
began with untouched trees. But of course, and this is once again the whole story of a forest journey that happened and happens every uh, place around the world. Once the forests are discovered, you have a ooh-ah effect for a few minutes, and then you say, how can we use this wood? <laughs> and so sugar was a very rare item in the uh, European world uh, until... Uh, the island of Madeira was discovered, they said suddenly, oh, this sugar that's so expensive from Turkey, we could grow it right here in Madeira. So uh, humans being, like I try to tell people, like termites, uh, they began, you know, um, cutting down the wood for one to refine the uh, sugar because uh, you can't just, uh, you know, pick sugar uh, it has to go through a, a refining process, and the only way you refine the sugar is through uh, heat, and the only way they could get the heat uh, was through uh, wood. And then also, the uh, wood at Madeira was so big that it revolutionized uh, shipping in uh, Spain and Portugal. This meant a new type of boat uh, that had a crow's nest, so you could see much farther than ever before. So suddenly you weren't tied down, uh, just sailing the coast of uh, Africa, you know, very, very, very closely uh, to land. Uh, you could uh, venture out to sea. And the uh, ships that were now being built, called the caravels, were the ships that Christopher Columbus uh, used to uh, discover the uh, New World. And the new world, in most people's eyes, was a world full of trees. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is John Perlin, author of A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees and the Fate of Civilization. You know, you mentioned that the that what brought people to Madeira was the deforestation in Europe. Uh, so they come to Madeira and start cutting down trees. And, of course, Eventually, with the growth of the sugarcane crops, I'm sure they got to a point where they couldn't look for any trees. So let's move forward a little bit to New England. Before the American Revolution, uh, you have uh, some really interesting thoughts in your book about how New England ended up supplying wood to the world, including England. And you mentioned masts. I think lumber for mast was included in that. Well, actually, uh, they're not thoughts. They're, uh, they were the major issue of uh, the English vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis the uh, America is there was a big problem because, A, English people were getting their big, you know, okay, let's, let's get back to why they needed it. The reason they needed huge, like sticks, they called it, you know, huge pieces of timber was the fact that the ships had expanded in size to about what was called 280 or 300 guns. And to balance that ship as you fired uh, required huge uh, masts. Um, the uh, masting timber was gotten mainly in Scandinavia. But if you look at the map, the um, exit from the Baltic into the Atlantic is very narrow. And the uh, Dutch, um, who were the enemies of the English, um, blockaded that um very uh, narrow uh, outlet, and so the only um, hope for the English Navy uh, was New England, and New England was home 
And it's very hard to imagine the great white pines of England. And all the English saw was masting material. Unfortunately uh, for the English, the Americans only saw the huge timber as uh, lumber uh, that could be sold throughout the world. So you began a inevitable conflict between America and England way before the revolution because the English sent troops over to prevent the colonists from cutting down the big trees for lumber. And the colonists, you know, they wanted to make a lot of money just like uh, America does today. Well, I love your mention of the northern white pine. That's my favorite tree. I spent some time in northern Wisconsin and as a matter of fact, we might as well have that come up as the next question. Uh, we talked about New England, but let's talk about Indiana, Ohio, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. What did they look like back in those days, and what have we done to them? Well, actually, that uh, caused my eyes to pop out because in the 1820s, Indiana was the number one state in producing lumber uh, for the rest of the country. My God, you know, Indiana, yeah. right? <laughs> Doesn't you look know, that way today. Or, you, you, you know, and actually, uh, maybe uh, it's unfortunate we can't show it, is the Great Seal of Indiana really uh, actually tells the whole story of a forest journey where they sh- it shows a settler hacking away at the last uh, tree of Indiana. And in the east, uh, the sunrise of civilization is celebrating uh, the deforestation of Indiana. And running uh, the other way west is uh, the buffalo. And now this is a real mind blower. In the Allegheny Mountains, which are now in the east, which at the time they were considered the separation between east and west, but now we consider them in the east, um, was uh, rife with uh, buffalo. Uh, There were like maybe 3 million buffalo in uh, western uh, Pennsylvania, for example. And they all like, just like the Native Americans, they all ran westward as the Americans uh, hacked down the uh, timber. And now getting to your Minnesota, you know, it's an amazing story because I actually uh, know a person who has uh, deep roots in uh, Minnesota And she sent me a picture, which is in the book, of her great-grandma sitting next to uh, all these piles of timber, right? Uh, Logs. And um, her cousin said, where did those logs come from, right? Not realizing (laughs) that at one time you had these giant trees uh, in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen photos in northern Wisconsin of what it looked like back in the day when they were building Milwaukee. Chicago, Detroit, and they just leveled, clear-cut, completely and totally uh, what was there. Today, people people marvel at the beautiful northern forest, but <laughs> those northern forests are nothing like the ones that existed uh, back in the day. Well, uh, remember that ditty, my name is John Johnson, I um, <laughs> live in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, I work in a lumber yard there. <laughs> That's right. 
That says it all. So there are that two- says it all. <laughs> right. And also, also, it's typified by oh, um, Huckleberry Finn uh, by Mark Twain, because Mark Twain lived in Hannibal, right on the banks of the uh, Mississippi. Right. Yeah. And yeah. what did uh, Mark Twain love to do as a kid? He loved to uh, swim out to uh, rafting timber. They would raft, you know, huge logs, yeah. and they would have like in the middle, like a canopy where someone uh, watched over them as they floated down from Minnesota all the way to New Orleans. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, this is what I show in my book. I try to bring everything in, you know, all culture, <laughs> books. And Huckle- we would have no Huckleberry Finn if we didn't have the uh, Minnesota timber uh, rafting to New Orleans. Right. You're listening to John Perlin. He's the author of A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees and the Fate of Civilization. There are two names that crop up in American history anytime you get into a discussion of trees and forests in America. Uh, Gifford Pinchot, the chief forester for the U.S. at one time, and John Muir, who was out to save the forest. Why don't you give us your take on the relationship between these two and the role they played in our public lands and forests. Well, actually, uh, this was a really, uh, you, you know, like, like, like when I was doing the book, uh, so many, uh, myths, um, were exploded in my brain, um, as I read what really happened. Actually, Gifford Pinchot and John Muir were actually very good friends. And actually, they shared basically the same concepts, uh, in the forest and the wood. And, for example, Gifford Pinchot said what pained him most was to see a great sequoia being dynamited and, you know, the pieces being um, used for um, grape steaks, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, jo- the, you see, John Muir and oh, uh, Gifford Pinchot never differed on forests. What they did and what broke their relationship was... Uh, Hetch Hetchy in uh, Yosemite. Uh, To understand John Muir, you have to understand he had one great love, and that was Yosemite. And so anybody who messed with Yosemite was his enemy. And Gifford Pinchot supported building that dam to get water to uh, San Francisco. And John Muir opposed it because he wanted Yosemite to remain pristine. But later in life, and I have this in the book. Uh, they meet each other at some kind of confab in, um, the Grand Canyon and they decide, and these are, this is in their older age. Mm-hmm. Uh, they decided to sneak off to a, uh, crook in the, um, Grand Canyon to, uh, reminisce. And Pinchot writes how he just enjoyed, enjoyed, uh, John Muir's amazing stories. And actually, Pinchot soured on the U.S. Forest Service by the 1930s because of its uh, subservience, as it is today, to loggers. And so Gifford Pinchot and John Muir have been improperly, the relationship has had, has been improperly described by uh, both environmentalists and the forest industry as being um, at loggerheads. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had actually a very uh, close friendship. In fact, Gifford Pinchot said he came to understand John Muir's uh, notion that sheep were um, locusts on hoofs. 
<laughs> you, you know, you know. So, so uh, and like this it. is uh, this is of uh, so many of the um, iconoclastic uh, portions of my book. Another example is everybody thinks of Africa as being uh, the dark continent. Um, I got to know a anthropologist, archaeologist uh, named Peter Schmidt. And Peter Schmidt actually discovered uh, that near Lake Victoria, the idea and the production of steel from iron was developed a thousand years before uh, the Europeans did. Uh, You know, that's just uh, one of the many myths that the uh, book breaks. And also the idea that, oh, um, groups like uh, before colonialism, in Africa were, um, you know, guardians of uh, the environment. This was not true at all. Uh, In fact, one of the incentives uh, for um, trading humans to um, Europeans was that the um, Africans in Togo and other places had so decimated their forests to make iron that power, you know, their power rested on iron, right? Like swords and other uh, war implements. So um, what they did was they um, the Europeans came down with iron bars from Sweden and would trade those iron bars with the African chiefs uh, for people. And so we see two big incentives for human slavery. Uh, one was uh, the growth of sugarcane, and two um, was the desire for iron by the Africans to continue uh, their iron culture, which meant uh, power. You know, John, you earlier mentioned sequoias, and I guess I thought I was a tree hugger until I read your book and realized that I didn't quite understand the difference between sequoias and redwoods. I mean, I knew they were two different trees, but uh, you talk in your book about how brittle the sequoia is, which is one of the reasons that may have saved more of them than the redwoods. But you also talk about the gold rush, and I thought that was uh, really uh, an interesting point. Again, something that uh, helps our listeners and readers better understand uh, the history of America. Well, remember that in the gold rush, you had lots of people uh, going up into the mountains, right, and into uh, territory uh, that um, was uh, basically far away from any uh, um, supply chain. And so, uh, once again, you know, a, a miner had to eat, right? Yeah. And to eat, uh, you needed wood fuel. And, uh, what was the wood, uh, around, uh, was the, uh, sequoia in, um, the, um, certain areas. But also, uh, another, uh, eye opener for me was how the, uh, silver mines say in, um, Western, uh, Nevada ate up all the uh, trees in the Sierra. Uh, See, what happened is, and this is probably the most significant moment, was the only way we could get metals was through high heat uh, that would remove the uh, metal that was encased in an ore because 95% of all metal is in uh, ore where it's only 10 or 20% of the rock. And so we would never have developed a metal age or metal ages had we not had wood fuel. Uh, Wood actually converted into uh, charcoal. And so 
rather than talk about the Metal Ages, we should talk about the Wood Age. Absolutely, and that's one of the key aspects of your book. You know, you mentioned earlier at the very beginning of our conversation, you talked about what's going on today with the U.S. Forest Service and and how you wish the Biden administration would pay more attention to the deforestation that's taking place. Uh, But in your book, you talk about the 1980s in regard to some of the really big trees coming down. And I don't want to let this interview conclude without – uh, you're, you're com- comparing for us what happened in the 80s with what's happening today, uh, I guess. Well, the actually, question is- uh, what, uh, t- um, uh, uh, excuse me for interrupting, no. but the 80s uh, were, um, you know, just part of the whole story that's told in the forest journey. Uh, you can talk about the, uh, you know, 5000 BC, where in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the first. Um, Ever a piece of literature that we have that's extant, uh, you know, its main thesis is um, the for- a forest journey uh, where they go to the cedar forest, and this is really hard to believe. Where southern Turkey, East Iran, and also um, Israel and uh, Lebanon were all forested with trees as impressive as our redwoods and sequoias. And Gilgamesh cuts them all down, and as they float them down once again in rafts down the Euphrates, his companion suddenly gets uh, a feeling of remorse and looks at Gilgamesh, who uh, he and Enkidu, who was his buddy, and Enkidu says to Gilgamesh, he says, I think we've turned the forest into a wasteland. What are we going to tell our gods? And I think this resonates uh, for this moment in the world. You know, what are we going to tell our descendants? Exactly. What, one of the things I hope we can leave our listeners with, uh, they can get a feel for this in your book, is in one of the conclusions you draw, it's toward the end of the book, it's an example of how forest plays such an important role in safeguarding the quality of our water supply. And when when you start talking about water supply, you may get some people's attention that you're not going to get just talking about knocking down a tree. And that's the reason why I'd like you to kind of wrap this up for us uh, by talking about the C- Seattle's Cedar River. I-, I have to tell you, I've I've never really paid much attention to Seattle's Cedar River <laughs> until I read your book. And I think it's a well, perfect well, example. Well, I, oh, 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 this is this is a really uh, great discovery that's occurred in the last thirty years, and uh, that uh, and that's part of my uh, epilogue is that although we don't uh, use wood as a fuel in the United States, uh, forests have become even more important for us uh, because of the water situation. Uh, various areas like Seattle, also New York City, uh, had the choice of either putting a lot of money into water purification plants or guarding uh, the the watersheds uh, for far less uh, money and for better quality water. And Seattle did exactly that, as did New York City, where all the um, watersheds of the Hudson are now um, owned by uh the um, city of New York to create the purest water, say in New York, uh, than say if you buy a bottle of uh, Perrier. 
as an example. <laughs> and the other a really major discovery, and this really should like get people thinking, is that until recently, people thought that we um, got all our rain from evaporation of the oceans. Um, it's now discovered that 40 to 50 percent of all rain is created by evapotranspiration of the leaves of trees. And actually, trees also act as a, you might say, a relay. Uh, they, uh, from very distant places, they carry uh, the um, precipitation possibilities, potentialities. For example, the Nile uh, gets 40% of its water uh, from the uh, trees of the Congo. Uh, China gets a good portion of their uh, rain uh, from uh, Siberia and from Scandinavian forests. Uh, so in a thirsty world, we have to really put a high, um, a high trophy, or you might say a huge, uh, need, uh, to keep the uh, big trees, uh, because otherwise the world will go thirsty. And already we have uh, problems throughout the world because of climate change, you know, with the, um, precipitation providing people with, 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 with our essential. And that's, uh, you know, satiating our thirst. Well, John, this has been an absolutely delightful conversation. You are a passionate advocate of the forest and your book, A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees in the Fate of Civilization. It's just a book that really tells the story. And I want to thank you for writing it. I want to thank you for joining us today at Reader's Corner. John Perlin, author of A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees in the Fate of Civilization. Well, well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Custer. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. This is my voice. It can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on the Black experience. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.